Welcome to the Cold Brew Podcast. I am David Gasper, joined as always by Matt Carroll, and we are the editors at ReviewingTheBrew.com. It is lockout day, what is it, 58, 60? I don't even know. I've lost track at this point. Lockout's been going on for two months now. Uh, spring training is coming up soon. Hopefully, if this lockout gets resolved, but we'll still have the minor league side. So lots to talk about as we get closer. And uh, our guest this week, great guest this week, friend of the podcast, Brewers beat writer for The Athletic, Will Salmon, take some time to join us. Will, how you doing, man? Doing pretty well. Thanks for having me on, guys. As always, you guys continue to do a really good job with the podcast, and uh, I enjoy listening. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for that. And, and we're always glad to, to have you on and uh, talk some baseball, even though there's there's not much baseball going on right now. Um, and, you know, everyone really kind of wants to know, when is this lockout going to end? And, you know, what like what's all going to happen? How are things going to change? And over at The Athletic, you got a whole bunch of guys that are plugged in uh, to that whole thing. Um, like there were some talks this past week. The, the Players Association made an offer. The, the union or, or the, the league came back the next day. They talked some more about some stuff. Um, there seemed to be some progress, some momentum. What's really kind of the, the update here on the lockout talks? Yeah, they ha- I don't think they have uh, gone back to the core economics that they want to, to that's kind of at the crust of everything here. Um, and until they go back to that conversation, it's hard to really give sort of some sort of um, timetable um, of any significance. And that was based on Evan Drellich reporting for us at The Athletic. I believe that's supposed to happen sometime next week, like early next week, um, as we record this on a Friday. So hopefully that um, holds true and they get back to that. But at least it's good to see them actually bargaining, it sounded like. Um, that, that was a good sign um, based on the reports that were out there uh, from people who were talking about both sides um, of it. Like that, that there was at least some chips uh, being discussed or thrown out um, back and forth, which was at least, I don't, I don't want to say it's, um, I don't want to give like false hope or anything for, for uh, a quicker resolution that some people suggested, but we are creeping up against that um, day of like February 14th, 15th, which was like a lot of, a lot of people who were just like asked randomly to kind of give a date based on um, just maybe their gut feeling or how things may be going on uh, as far as like dialogue goes, they threw out that date. Um, and like, that's kind of like been the date for me as far as like where I set, um, my panic meter or like my meter of being sort of disenchanted by it until we get into like mid-February then um, I won't be as uh, upset by it or put off by it um, because I kind of accepted the fact that like spring training will probably be delayed a little bit um, and hopefully it is just a little bit uh, and until we get to that point um, I'll still try to hope to believe and I'll still try to hope to believe that that will be the case yeah, that's. I mean, that's what I was going to ask you. Is uh, mid February fourteenth, fifteenth. That's right about the time that uh, pitchers and catchers generally are reporting. So, if we're potentially not even getting a resolution towards that, is it pretty much already been accepted at this point then that um, we are going to lose at the very least, you know, some cactus league, grapefruit league games? Um, I don't know if that's the case quite yet. Although, like realistically speaking, I don't. I don't see how that how that wouldn't happen. Um, it's just one of those things that like you can't really rule out because uh, 
with two weeks, I'm looking at the calendar right now as we're talking, it's the 28th. And so like two weeks, that would give us what, like the 10th or the 12th, somewhere around there. And then maybe give a couple, give a week or two people to report. Eh, you know, maybe. Um, I think a lot of people will say that spring training is rather long for everybody except for pitchers. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where it's like, unless you are a pitcher, like you probably don't need all those games. We see so many people um, not play or play half games, that sort of thing. So I don't know if the, what the perfect number is um, aside from what we're used to, but that's also easy for me to say and easy for like superstar players to say, and not so easy for like the guys who are battling for a roster spot or battling for um, positions or playing time. And so that makes it uh, very challenging. And like, you just don't know about those guys. And it kind of like reminds you of the 2020 summer camp thing where you, know, you had guys for the Brewers, you know, Logan Morrison was one of those players who like, you didn't really know like what his status was going into it because he really just had two weeks to kind of show you like, okay, this is who I am and this is what I'm capable of right now. And uh, maybe it will work out, maybe it won't. Um, so you kind of feel for those guys, the guys who are, who are making like uh, league minimum or guys who have are, who are coming off of injuries who, who need that time or who need to have that time to showcase that they're healthy or that they're ready to, um, to be a contributor this year. Yeah, and, and for those established guys on the roster, like, I mean, Christian Yelich, he's not going to need to play that much in spring training, although given his season last year, uh, maybe getting some more at-bats in before the season might not be a bad thing. But, I mean, like Ryan Braun famously never really played much and never really enjoyed playing much um, in spring training. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's going to be, uh, you know, it, it's all about building up the pitchers and, and their progression and making sure they're healthy, and especially with – the pitchers being the core of this Brewers roster and the reason that they're a contending team, it's going to be very important uh, for them. And I mean, when it comes to this lockout and getting things started again as well, one of the big questions everyone has is the designated hitter. We haven't heard much about it um, in basically in reports and talks, but everyone kind of expects it to be there, but we haven't really heard much for bargaining on it from what you've heard and from what you've seen is the designated hitter coming to the National League this year? Oh, have, haven't heard. Um, so I, I think it's like one of those things where like it's the same thing that we heard uh, heading into 2021 where everybody sort of accepted it and it never even happened. Um, it was never anything that actually occurred. We just accept a lot of people just accepted it after 2020 that uh, since it was adopted in that year that it would just be carried over since it made a lot of sense. Um but really, I haven't heard anything about it. It's just one of those things that is expected to be written in there, I guess. Um, but have not heard that it would uh, 100% happen. Um, and that's true with a lot of this stuff. Uh, I, I guess I, I feel like until like it's there and until like it, it gets agreed upon um, within the, the parameters of, it, of an entire, entirely new CBA, there's really nothing that we can say that's actually going to happen um, until it's firmly agreed upon. And so, yeah, it's something that I expect, I guess, um, just based on conversations that you have and um, uh, just reading the tea leaves. But, like, nothing has been agreed upon, to my knowledge, at least. I mean, is that the expectation? I mean, we've heard basically everything so far from these negotiations has, in fact, been, you know, the economic issues, arbitration, free agency, you know, addressing all those different things and the rule changes um, yeah, there hasn't really been much. Was it, is that essentially the plan all along? Let's hammer out these, 
you know, difficult things that are so much more important, get that done first and then talk rule changes afterwards. Yeah, I didn't really um, anticipate so much about rule changes. I feel like this is mostly economics and um, everything that falls under that umbrella, uh, first and foremost, and then rule changes, perhaps. But I feel like rule changes are a distant second to it, um, as far as I'm understanding it. Uh, I don't think that, um, yeah, because like they, they don't necessarily like impact the money in a significant way, right? Like, yes, it does on like a, a very... Uh, my, micro level having a designated hitter does impact salaries um, for a certain degree of players though um, not every player and not every player is going to go through that process and feel that um, trickle down effect I guess not necessarily I guess, not necessarily at least so yeah I wouldn't anticipate like rule changes um, as much as you would uh, the arbitration stuff the um, pre-free agent years that sort of thing and the draft lottery has been uh, one of those things as well. I mean, we, we've kind of seen this kind of float about like changes to the draft uh, to deal with tanking and things like that. And it seems like they're trying to like bake in some incentives for like small market teams and uh, make it kind of more friendly to them and perhaps adding some extra draft. I've seen one proposal where, uh, like extra draft picks to small market teams that make the playoffs and things like that. I'm like, I'm looking at this. I'm like, this seems very beneficial to the brewers. Um, if this were ever to be implemented, because I mean, that can mean extra early picks. It could mean earlier picks than under the current formula, uh, that could really help them out. I mean, is that something that, that seems like that, that they could agree upon that, that we could see some sort of NBA style draft lottery. Maybe I just want to get too carried away with any proposal right now. Cause like, I feel like we saw this a lot too, like in 2020 where um, when they were hashing out the um, health and safety uh, protocols that we would see one proposal one week and then see a totally shifted one or one that contained maybe uh, a very small portion of that overall theme into the um, final item that was accepted. So like, yeah, I think so. Um, that it, it could benefit them on the surface, like the proposal that you're that you're discussing. I just would caution against like going off on that specific proposal because I feel like it would be changed and adapted to, and um, you know some aspects of it will be agreed on, I'm sure, or maybe like some themes will be, um, but the overall like points of it will will probably be, take time to be hashed out. Um, but on that topic of just like um, I guess like a further, not just like the draft or um, international or anything like that, but just as far as tanking goes, um, you could, you could see like two sides of it as far as like the expansion of like the playoffs, um, uh, more teams being in it. Uh, you, you see like incentives both ways, right? Like you could see like mm -hmm. a, a team. Um, if you increase the pool of playoff, playoff teams, you could see it from, okay. Like their owners may say like, we don't need to do too much to make the playoffs, but at the same time, like, okay. Um, you can look at it the other way and say, well, we only need to do this to get into the playoffs. So if we do one extra move, now we could be a viable team in the playoffs, um, that sort of thing. So, you know, I'm, I'm not quite sure how I feel about it. Um, my first instinct is to think that like the more teams that get in, um, lessen the need to really improve your roster. Um, 
just based on simple math. But then you could also make that argument, like I just tried to, about, you know, if you are getting in, you might as well try to win it at the same time. Um, and therefore, if you look at it that way, it does give you the incentive of, okay, um, if I'm good enough to get in, I might as well make some noise here and, and try to make a splash. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you there. I mean, it's like there, there's totally like uh, consequences and like unintended consequences with, with some of these things that they may not uh, anticipate. And yeah, I mean, those rebuilds could be smaller or, or shorter and, and not as many could happen, but uh, there, there's still going to be down periods for teams. And I mean, with, cause like, I mean, David Stearns came in, in a rebuild, uh, you know, starting a rebuild and he was able to build it up pretty quickly uh, and get things going. Uh, meanwhile, at the same time, Matt Klintak was hired by the Phillies to oversee a rebuild and it did not really go that well and they still haven't really made the playoffs. So Klintak was essentially demoted a year or two ago and now he has come on to the Brewers front office as a special assistant to David Stearns and Matt Arnold. That was just announced this past week. And I also saw a report that he's going to be basically heading up the international scouting uh, department taking over from Mike Groupman, who left for the assistant GM position with uh, the Red Sox. What, what's your take, Will, on Matt Klintak coming to the Brewers front office to head up international scouting? I'm not really sure. Like, that's not really, that was never really known as his forte um, international scouting. Like, that's not something that, like, you see his name and you, you automatically think, okay, you know, he really beefed up the Phillies international scouting department. Like, that's a, that's a, you know, a great thing for the Brewers that they have him there. I don't really think that. I think that, like, he has a lot of experience and he is somebody that ran a, team, a major league baseball team. And that says a lot to have a guy like that run an op- uh, a component of your operation, which is essentially what I guess he'll be doing. Um, but they have a lot of people in um, international scouting, as they should. Um, and they have a lot of good minds there. Um and some some great scouts as well in a few different countries. So I, I think they'll be okay there regardless. I think it was a big loss to lose Mike Rubin. Well, he's going to have a great future and already has a, a great career going um, to the Red Sox as an assistant general manager. But you know, like I said, like they, they do have a good infrastructure there and they should be able to withstand it. And we don't, we won't really know because, um, the impact of like not having Mike or not having his leadership there until maybe another year, another class or two because of the way international scouting goes. Like some of these kids have been locked up to, the, to these teams for a couple of years now. Mm-hmm. So like the, the class that we just saw, those were all guys that Mike Groupman sort of oversaw. He oversaw all of their, um, you know, commitments and signings to, to the Brewers essentially. And the same goes probably for the next class for that matter. Like these are guys that have been known commodities essentially for the Brewers. A lot of them, at least the big names have been. So um, it's hard to say. And with the special assistant job itself, like there's so many, there's already like half a dozen guys for the Brewers who have that title um, that we don't necessarily like hear so much about, whether it's like Quentin McCracken, for instance, Mm -hmm. um, is one of them as well, who's a special assistant. Um, It just contact gets the um, attention rightfully so because he was the guy for the Phillies and now he's playing a, playing a role for the Brewers. I'm speaking of, and we only got you for a couple extra minutes here. Um, 
uh, since we're on the subject of the international draft, um, you had done a piece that kind of uh, did a great wrap up of uh, the Brewers' recent uh, 33 signings. I um, suggest anyone, uh, if you have an athletic subscription, if you don't, go get one. Uh, if you do, check out Will's piece. Um, but just any quick thoughts on a couple of your, maybe your favorite guys from that class? <laughs> yeah, I, I like international scouting a lot. I feel like it's one of those areas that like you don't really read a lot about or hear a lot about. Um, and I, I'm not really sure why in comparison to like the amateur draft. I feel like the amateur draft, you go up and down, you, you have a lot there. Um, well, I mean, I guess I do know why. I mean, it's amateur draft is American, uh, you know, dealing with American talent and there's so many people watching college baseball and mm-hmm. um, who are invested in high school baseball for that matter. Um, but to get to your question, uh, a lot of people saw it as like a two person uh, draft class with uh, Severino and and, uh, Barrios from Venezuela. Um, But like a lot of people within the Brewers organization believe that it was actually like a three-person draft class. Well, more than that, of course, so they'll believe it's a lot deeper naturally. But um, just at the top, uh, Luis Lara is also a very, very good player. Um, Venezuelan center fielder, uh, I believe he's 17. Another all-around talent. And he's somebody who kind of, um, I think he signed for over a million, which kind of puts him in the same sort of ballpark as the two other mm-hmm. players I mentioned. And that was sort of overlooked as like a major signing for them. When I don't think it should have been. Um, he has a, he has a really elite speed, good range defensively, and a pretty pure hitter. Not as much power as the other two guys, um, but he's definitely somebody to know. Um, and so, I, I, you know, the more I dug into him, I was like, wow, you know, it really should be known as, free people, which really goes to their philosophy of kind of spreading the wealth and maybe not going after that one top player. And for a team like the Brewers, I feel like it's a good strategy um, because you take more shots at this because that's essentially what this is, is you're taking shots on these 17, 16, 17 year old kids. And like I said earlier in our conversation, a lot of times these guys are committed to the, to these teams at the age of like 14 and 15. So that makes it even harder. And so the more shots you get at guys who are considered pretty good talents, the better off you are, I feel like, because chances are not all of them are going to hit. Maybe one of them will. And so if you give yourself more chances, um, obviously it's behooves a team like the Brewers to do that and uh, put them, put them in a, a good situation. If just one of them hits. Yeah. And, and I mean, the Brewers have had kind of, they've had a lot of success with that in recent years and not like even their top bonus guys um, don't like Hedbert Perez was not the biggest bonus guy in 2019. Uh, Henry Mendez was not the biggest bonus guy last year. Um, so you really kind of never know how these guys are, are going to turn out. It, it, it's such a long time and developing them and things like that. So uh, a lot can happen with them. Uh, Will, I know you got to go. Thanks again for for your time and hopping on and chatting with us here for for a little bit. And uh, we really appreciate you coming on, man. Oh, yeah. Anytime, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks a lot, man, for for joining us. All right. So that was Will Salmon, uh, Brewers beat reporter for The Athletic, joining us here on the Colbert Podcast. We're going to be keeping it going a little bit here. We got plenty more to uh, to talk about on this episode um and unfortunately we didn't have the time to um to talk to will uh, about the hall of fame balloting uh, that came out uh, th- this past week and i will doesn't have a hall of fame vote just yet uh, he's only been a baseball writer for a couple of years you got to have you got to be at least uh you got to be a member of the bbwaa for at least 10 years before you get a hall of fame vote so uh, i know he doesn't have one 
Um, but when it came down to the voting, David Ortiz got elected. Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, uh, Sammy Sosa did not. All steroid guys. Kurt Schilling did not. Um, they were all in their final year on the ballot. And all those guys were kept out for non-baseball reasons um, and just purely for uh, off-the-field stuff, for steroids. And, and you know, I see, I've seen a lot of people being upset about the exclusion of Barry Bonds. I feel like we knew this was coming. But, Matt, what are your th- do you think Barry Bonds should be in the Hall of Fame? I 100% think Barry Bonds should be in the Hall <laughs> of Fame. Um, we had a, um, hall of fame kind of exercise that we did amongst the uh, site experts at, uh, fan cited, as you know, um, and my ballots, um, I absolutely had him. Um, I had a lot of those guys from that era, uh, including David Ortiz. And the part that's really starting to bother me with this is like how much writers are starting to split hairs when it comes to, um, those who were linked to steroids and like, how, how do you determine which guys who were linked have a shot to get in, which ones don't? Because if you look at a lot of these guys ballots, I mean, they can, I I saw a uh, bonds, but no Clemens ballot the other day, not entirely sure why you would go with that. I've obviously seen Ortiz and not bonds or Clemens. Um, You know, A-Rod is on some and isn't on others. Sammy Sosa same thing. And I just, it, I don't get at what point you, I, how do you determine what of the, which of those guys deserve to be in and which ones don't. Um, I, und- I understand that there is in part of what you weigh when deciding who gets in is their character. There is the character clause. That's what always mm-hmm. keeps coming up now. Um, and, and I understand that that's there, but how do you justify leaving some guys out based off of that, but putting other guys in, like, I just, it, it's, it's starting to boggle my mind. And I, I, at what point do the writers just not let anyone who was linked to anything, even remotely bad steroids or not, like who's going to make the hall of fame at that point, it's clearly mm-hmm. becoming about likability. Um, because if you look at someone like Kurt Schilling, I don't, I, I'm not the biggest fan of Kurt Schilling as a person, but yeah. by the stats, of course, he deserves to be a Hall of Famer. Right. He wasn't connected to the steroids like some of these other guys. But was, was he nearly as likable as David Ortiz? No, he was telling people to purposely leave him off the ballot. He's gotten to that yeah. big of a fight with the writers. So I just, I don't if know. If Kurt Schilling had just not said a damn thing, like if he had just chilled out and just gone about his day-to-day life, and just not gotten into fights with everyone about it, he would have gotten in probably like four or mm-hmm. five years ago, at least. Like, you know, he just kind of shot himself in the foot uh, with that. And then, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and then like Bonds, like Bonds has the best statistical case of pretty much anyone to make the Hall of Fame. Like, he's up there with the all-time grades statistically. And he's not in because of, you know, the the steroids, which, I mean, he obviously took, I mean, that dude ballooned up like, <laughs> like it was pretty clear and obvious, but at the time there were also no rules against it. Right. Um, and I don't believe he ever tested positive because uh, once the testing began, I, well, when was that 2004, 2005 or something when the testing began, 
Um, then by that point, he was kind of towards the end of his career. He never got caught uh, with anything like that. I know a lot of people bring up David Ortiz's, you know, positive tests in the Mitchell report or whatever, um, or, or whatever congressional thing, but like there were a bunch of false positives in there. Um, no one really kind of knows who actually was, who actually wasn't because the, the testing was so archaic kind of back then. Like it was the very early stages. None of it was very reliable. And, you know, Ortiz, he got tested so many times over the years. He never once tested positive. Um, obviously yes, very likable dude. And, and he put up, he put up hall of fame numbers for sure, but his numbers were nowhere near as good as Barry Bonds. I mean, I mean, no one has numbers near as good as Barry Bonds, but it, it just kind of seems like, I don't know. Some, some people were just kind of the, like they had their minds made up, no steroids at all. Um, but defining who took steroids, who didn't is extremely tough. And especially when he was in a time where it wasn't even illegal. Right. And that's, that's a huge part of this for me. I mean, there rules have changed over the years, you know, just generally you've got, you know, we've added games and they've uh, raised uh, and lowered mound heights and um, you've got DH and half the league and half of it, not uh, in like all these different things. And granted like steroids, this is, I'm not saying these are the same as your general rules, um, but there was no rule against it. And so things have evolved in baseball over time. There are different quote unquote eras where players competed differently. They had different, you know, types of stats as a result. Um, and they didn't just shut the hall of fame down because this era's players were under a different environment than this previous era's players and you know the steroid era almost in a way fits into that sort of circumstance and so how do you just decide now that you're going to ignore a time in history fair or not like i I get it like it's not you know steroids gave certain players an unfair advantage over others fine Mm -hmm. well there should have been a rule against it then i mean maybe this the assumption is well there shouldn't have to be a rule against it because it's cheating whatever there still wasn't a rule against it so it's i've seen all these stories about you know how am i going to you know explain to my kid you know when they're grown up and asking about the hall of fame and you know why isn't why is barry bonds in it uh not in it but david ortiz is and like how am i going to explain that you know to someone who's new to baseball and yeah but right. like, but, but both of them did. I mean, right by by the letter of the law. So yeah, I, I I don't know. I mean, it's in the end, the Hall of Fame is a museum of history, and like it yeah. or not, the steroid era was a part of history. Yeah. So I, I get it. Again, I get the judging judgment of character being a factor and blah blah blah. But I mean, it's the Hall of Fame. It's a hall. The famous people, the best people with Barry Bonds case, even before he reportedly started taking steroids, had he stopped playing, he's got a good chance of still making the whole yeah, thing. Yeah. He, he was on track without him, which right. also just kind of makes it a lot more frustrating that he actually did end up taking them. Um, when it's like, dude, you were just fine without it. Um, and you're going to be in here without it, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's, 
I'm going to understand not liking cheaters and, and not wanting to reward guys who cheated to get to that level, because if they didn't take them, they wouldn't be hall of fame players, you know, like, 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 Rafael Palmero or Mark McGuire or whoever, it's like, if you weren't taking steroids, would you have been a Hall of Fame caliber player? And if you believe that answer is no, I, I think that's how some writers might rationalize like, okay, you wouldn't have made it here without steroids. So because you cheated to get to this level, I'm not going to reward you for that. But like, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out like what their line of thinking is. I, I think that's probably what it is not wanting to reward guys who cheated to get to that level. Um, But I I think, yeah, definitely for a guy like Barry Bonds, even without the steroids, he was going to be there. I mean, he was, he was incredible far before uh, he ever had them. Right. And that's the weird thing with thinking that some of these writers are going by that logic, because if they are, there's still players who should be in such as Barry Bonds. Roger Clemens is probably one of those guys as well. Yeah. Um, it, but it, you've got all of these writers trying to play the morality police. And when you have this large of an amount of writers, all with different um, opinions mm-hmm. on what should or shouldn't exclude someone, you end up just with this mess. And that's how you don't know why certain yeah. players make it in and certain ones don't. And, and the electorate keeps on changing with, with mm-hmm. uh, guys retiring, with new writers becoming eligible. And that's something that we've seen over the past 10 years as well. Because, I mean, Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens started out at like 35% uh, on the ballot in, in their first year. And they made it all the way up to like 66, 67%. Uh, so it went from like one third of the vote to two thirds of the vote. Uh, with, old people, with old ones retiring, new ones coming in. I think of the of the first time writers this year, like 80% voted for Bonds and Clemens. Um, so like if they had a few more years, they probably would have gotten there. Um, and keep in mind, the the Hall of Fame recently dropped down the number of years on the ballot from 15 to 10. So they would have had five extra years to, to continue their push and they might have been able to get there. Um, but I mean, we'll see. Um, you know, maybe things will change on the, on the veterans committees, but even then a lot of the old guard of players don't really like the steroid era guys, you know, cause they all did it clean. They were able to put up ridiculous numbers doing it cleanly and the steroid era guys, you know, they, they don't like them as much and maybe don't want them in their club. Cause now it's the, it's the members of the club determining who gets in. And if you're one of those old guys that's already in there, you may not want those guys to get in. Um, so we'll see what happens. The Brewers had one former player on the ballot, Prince Fielder. He got two votes. Uh, I still don't know who those writers were, that their ballots have not been made public yet. Uh, but he got 0.5% of the vote, falling well short of the 5% needed uh, to remain on the ballot for next year. So Prince Fielder falls off. Um, a moment of silence for Prince Fielder's Hall of Fame candidacy. Okay. okay. So I do, David, r- real quick. Um, I, I do have one question for you. All right. um, what, as we know, not uh, writers aren't required to make their ba- ballots public. Mm-hmm. If 
every writer was required to make their ballot public and potentially had to answer for why they did or didn't include someone. Do you think there's a chance that Bonds or Clemens make it, make it in? And I ask this because um, Ryan Thibodeau, who uh, has been kind of doing the public compilation of um, Hall mm-hmm. of Fame ballots for a few years now, um, every, everyone watches this guy and kind of the percentage of the votes that these players are getting. And right up until the release, it almost looked like Bonds, or Clem- Bonds and Clemens had a chance to make it in. They were above of the votes that were public, ballots that were public. Um, they were above that 75% threshold. Yet, based off of kind of how previous voting had gone, um, there was an expectation that they would end up losing uh, a percent of votes once everything got released. And sure enough, that's what happens. Um, Bonds and Clemens end up falling below that 75%. And it's the writers who didn't have to make their votes public mm-hmm. that had a, played a large part in that. Do you think if the votes were public that there would be, and, and now all of a sudden you're having to potentially publicly defend your vote, is there a chance that they potentially make it in? I mean, potentially, because I mean, the internet can bully some people into doing things. Um, Mm -hmm. And perhaps it would bully some of those guys into voting for Bonds and Clemens and and guys like that. But I mean, yeah, they suffered a big drop off in the private ballots. I mean, Bonds dropped 22 percent. Clemens dropped 21 percent. And what's interesting is some of the guys that jumped. Omar Vizquel Vizquel was up 26 percent in the private ballots versus the public ones. Mm-hmm. And like the scale dropped off considerably this year because of the reports of uh, sexual assault and uh, domestic violence uh, that were happening during his career that have come out in the past year. So pretty much everyone has dropped him off uh, on their ballots, but the private ones kept him on, which I found interesting. Uh, yeah. But yeah, if they made it public, I think a lot of guys maybe would, but also some of these guys, I mean, they might be your just like old crotchety baseball writers who don't care what Twitter thinks um, and, and don't want to deal with it. Maybe they just aren't even on Twitter. Um, they don't read the comment sections. They don't worry about that. They write their pieces. They put in their belts. They do whatever. And they're done. They, they leave it at that. And they don't care what people think of it. So some might change. Some might not. Um, but I mean, there are some of these guys that, like our writers and it's like wait a minute you don't you don't even cover baseball um (laughs) like uh, there was one um michael hunt uh who used to be at the milwaukee journal sentinel and i think he covers like hockey or something or like like he doesn't even cover baseball anymore and he hasn't for some time but he's still got a hall of fame vote so you know and i think he had a very small ballot and like he didn't vote for bonds or clemens and uh, it was either, I, I feel like it was either blank or I don't know if it was like that Jeff Kent only ballot or whatever it was, but I mean, there, there were some weird ballots in there, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, it was crazy, but, um, I just wanted to see more with Prince Fielder on it, but I knew he really had a long shot because his career, his career was too short, Matt. Uh, he didn't, he wasn't able to stay healthy long enough. Uh, the, the neck injury derailed his career if he had stuck around longer, um, been able to play the last like six years or so, five, six years, he would have, uh, he would have been able to get in at the end of his career. I feel. Yeah. I mean, it's hard not to think that for a guy who is, you know, hitting ungodly amounts of, uh, home runs per year at his peak. 
um, was a, you know, solid, you know, close to 300 hitter for a lot of that. I mean, he was numbers across the board. That was an impressive, impressive man Mm -hmm. um, when he was at his very best and just so unfortunate with uh, how that had to end. Um, I've seen a couple stories from uh, about him since he retired and it's, it's good to see that he's kind of, you know, he's pain free these days and enjoying his life. Um, but, oh, the world would have been a better place if we got to have more Prince Fielder in it. That's for sure. Yeah. But uh, you remember his uh, his kids, you know, the, the little kids that would hang around with them at, uh, at Miller Park, uh, at the Home Run mm-hmm. Derby and stuff like that. Well, they're in high school now. Um, and the <laughs> oldest one, I think, is like a like a junior. And I remember seeing a video of a swing last year and he looks just like his dad. Yeah, he does. Um, oh, I saw so. that, too. It's so beautiful. Yeah, so perhaps uh, the Brewers' first-round pick um, in 2023 or whenever it is that uh, that he's eligible. I think, I think we need to have a legacy, uh, you know, thing here with, with the Fielder family. Just get him in here. Um, yep. They're good for 319 career homers. Cecil <laughs> Fielder was good for it. Prince Fielder was good for it. Exactly, not one homer more or less. 319 <laughs> career home runs. And I think the Brewers will take that. Yeah. Yeah. That's entering like Chris Davis batting average weirdness in terms of statistical oddities. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, we'll see what happens there, but that's a future drafts uh, to worry about. Let's move on here. Um, let, let's talk some trade proposals and and trade ideas. So, uh, I had this article go up. Um, earlier t- earlier here on Friday on the site, on the Brewers' top five trade chips, um, top five big league trade chips. So from the 40-man roster, uh, who are their top trade chips? And there were a lot of pitchers on this list. And number one atop the list, of course, Josh Hader. Um, and he's followed pretty closely by, I have Adrian Hauser at two, and Eric Lauer at three. And I think for the Brewers, trading from their pitching depth to improve the offense makes the most sense if they're going to make another move this offseason. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And we talked about those two, I think it was last week, um, a little bit. And I I think it's interesting. You You could really go either direction with who could be number two and number three on that list of trade chips. Cause uh, on the one hand, you've got Lauer um, who's younger and a lefty, uh, but he's only had the one year really of quote unquote breakout um, in the major leagues. Whereas Hauser uh, has got a couple extra years on him um, and is a right-hander, but um, has shown a little bit more, um, uh, I guess, just promise in the big leagues, both as a starter and a reliever. He's uh uh, He's more you know, take out yeah. exactly take out 2020 um that one you know everyone has a bad year corbin corbin burns knows that um <laughs> but yeah hater has a little bit more poly hater hauser has a little bit more <laughs> polish on him so um yeah it, it's interesting um but it just goes to show especially when you get to uh number four on your list just how much depth the uh, brewers really have to pull from yeah yeah and they got a plenty of guys here. I mean, starting pitching depth has never really been a strength of the Brewers organization, but it is now. Um, and it's incredible to see. And you just really kind of wish the offense would have that same kind of depth. So maybe you, you trade from that pitching depth to, 
to get some of that offense. And that's where I made this trade proposal uh, involving the twins the other day. Uh, it involved Adrian Hauser. So, uh, you know, I felt, I felt Hauser is uh, the more likely uh, trade candidate of the two. I mean, when you look at this Bruce rotation depth, you got the top three, Burns, Woodruff, Peralta. They're not going anywhere. You got the prospects, Ashby and Small. I don't see the Brewers giving up them either. Um, and then you have your back-end starters in Eric Lauer and Adrian Hauser. And because of the handedness of Lauer, Ashby, and Small all being lefty, and then Burns, Woodruff, Peralta all being righty, Hauser also being a righty kind of throws off the balance. Um, so that's where I feel like he kind of makes the most sense as a trade candidate. Uh, plus, again, as you mentioned, he is a bit older than Lauer. Uh, Lauer might bring back more in a trade, but I, I think the Brewers might be more willing to part with Hauser uh, instead. So I, so I looked around. I'm like, okay, what do the Brewers need? And they really kind of need, like, their only real positional need is first base slash DH. The outfield is completely covered and, and dealt with. The middle infield is covered. Third base, you have Urias catcher you got Omar Narvaez still for one more season so really the only position you could see them upgrading is first base you got Rowdy Telez who is solid uh, you got Keston Hira who needs a bounce back in a major way uh, but really it's a giant question mark you don't really know what you're going to have at that position um, you also have the DH that could potentially be coming in as we talked about earlier here on the pod so if that comes in you really you you do have room to add another bat uh, to to this corner infield and, and DH type bat. So I started looking around the American League, like okay, who are some DH types uh, that might be available? And I got to the Minnesota Twins, and I looked at their roster, and their rotation sucks. <laughs> like straight up, I'm sorry, it sucks. Yet they just signed Dylan Bundy to a one year deal. He's their ace, quote unquote. And then they have a whole, they got guys like Bailey Ober and Lewis Thorpe and Randy Dobnak. And I'm just like, who the hell are these guys? Um, they aren't going to stand in the way of a guy like Adrian Hauser. Um, so I looked at them, then I looked at their lineup and I saw they have a bunch of corner type bats that have been coming up. They got Alex Kirilov. Uh, they got uh, who else? Uh, they got Trevor Larnick that, that came up. They got, um, uh, who else? Uh, they got Miguel Sano. They were kind of first base DH. They got, um, I'm waiting for my page to load here um, so I can see the, see the roster. So I'm just kind of stalling for time. But, like, they've got a bunch of, like, young prospects that have come up. Uh, in recent year, Alex Kirilov, uh, Miguel Sano, they got Josh Johnson at third. Yeah, Larnick, they got Max Kepler, um, Jose Miranda has been coming up. They got Brent Rooker. Um, you know, they've got really kind of a bunch of young guys, and they're going to want to get them some playing time. And that's where a veteran like Sano, um, you know, the, there's been rumors that they're that he's on the trade block, that they could be looking to move him. And I think he would make a lot of sense for the Brewers. So I, I talked with the, the Puckett's Pond uh, guys, the, the Minnesota Twins site here at, at Fansided. So I talked with them like, okay, let, let's try to hash out what a, what a deal would look like. I initially was looking for Miguel Sano 
and a pitching prospect, a really good one. I asked for Louis Varland initially, and he's like, eh, Varland's going to be a tough pry. I mean, he was a minor league pitcher of the year this past year. Uh, he's, a, he's apparently a Minnesota kid. I did not know that initially, uh, but like he's from Minnesota. So um, they're just like, eh, we're probably not going, going to part with him. And like, I get it. I mean, when the Brewers drafted Alex Pinellas, I was like, eh, I don't think they're going to trade him. But sure enough, they did. Uh, I'm rambling now. But so <laughs> here's, here's a trade proposal I made. The Brewers send Adrian Hauser to the Minnesota Twins in exchange for Miguel Sano, first baseman slash DH, left-handed pitching prospect Stephen Hajar, and $2.75 million in cash. Now, before I explain it all, Matt... What do you think of that trade proposal? Would you accept that? I would absolutely accept that. Yes. Um, I think it benefits both sides. Um, as you pointed out, the starting pitching depth for the twins, not great starting pitching depth for the brewers. Very great. Um, it addresses, like you said, the, uh, one of the few, you know, true positions of need um, on offense for the brewers. Um, and then the pot gets a little sweetened there. Um, with the prospect and cash. Um, as I pointed out um, last week, you do not pull away uh, starting pitchers in a trade, uh, especially ones who are below 30 um, and at least a little bit controllable yet um, for cheap. And so the twins, even to get an Adrian Hauser are going to have to give up a little bit. And uh, Sano and Hauser are similar in age. Um, and then the Brewers, um, I'm, I would be totally good with that uh, pitching prospect as a return as well. So, um, yes, I, I click on the accept. Yeah, I, I think it's a deal that, that does make uh, a, a lot of sense as well. I mean, Sano fits that first base DH type mold. He's not that great of a defender, but I mean, they said the same thing about Vogelback and they played him over there and he was fine. Um, they said the same thing about Hira and he was fine, except for the fact that his bat sucked. Um, but that like, they could use some help over there. Council will mix and match it as he needs to, but, uh, Sano brings 30 homers a year. You know, he's going to strike out a decent amount. He's not going to hit for the highest batting average, but he brings thump. Like you look at Miguel Sano, that dude brings thump to your lineup and the Brewers need some more of that. Um, so I, I think it makes some sense there. Uh, the, the issue there then I think is a contract because he's under contract for this year at 10 and a half million. Uh, so that'd be a lot for the Brewers to swallow, to, to add onto their payroll. Um, then he has a club option for next year. So the Brewers are getting at max two years of control over Sano. And the option is for $14 million. The buyout on that option is 2.75 million which is why I asked for the $2.75 million in cash in that trade. So that way the twins cover the buyout on that final year. Um, and when, when it comes down to it, you know, after this season, if, if Sano does well, uh, or if he does poorly or, or if the Brewers just don't want to pay him that 14 million, they have the buyout money from the twins. It won't cost them anything for the next year. So I, I could see that being a win. And Stephen Hajar, that is a guy that the Brewers like. Uh, in 2018, when he was coming out of high school, the Brewers drafted Hajar in the 22nd or 21st round. So they already know him. They already like him. Uh, he was the second round pick of the, of the Twins this last year in, in this last draft coming out of college. 
Um, so this way the Brewers can get a guy that they liked previously. He's a left-handed pitching prospect. Um, you know, he's lower down in the minors. So that kind of, um, you know, he, he's not going to help in the near future like, like Snow would, but I think it makes sense. Uh, I think that'd be a guy that they would target. Um, I think, I mean, even though I put together this deal, looking on it now, like maybe I should ask for like a reliever of some kind that, that can help in, in the uh, short term. Because, I mean, this is three years of Adrian Hauser, who's likely going to be a number two or a number three starter um, in pretty much any other rotation, especially the Twins rotation. He'd probably be number two. So for that, you probably could get or should get a little more than just one year, maybe two, of a slugger like Snow who doesn't who does have the strikeout issues and, and the batting average issues um, and, a, and a decent pitching prospect. But, you know, maybe throwing a bullpen guy, uh, like, like a middle reliever, like, you know, a, a veteran that, that would fill like the Hunter Strickland type role. Uh, maybe that could do it. Um, Cause I, I know I've seen some comments, you know, about that who were who saying, no, it's like not quite enough. I've seen a lot of people that were on board with it that, that found it good too, which, um, and from both sides as well. Like I've seen a ton of Brewers fans and Twins fans are both like, yeah, I'll take that. Rare. Like, yeah, very rare. So I'm like, this must be actually somewhat solid. Yeah, uh, could go that route. Um, I, it, just quickly looking at the uh, uh, Twins bullpen, really only a couple names there that, um, yeah, that, that's what I was thinking um, too. They don't have much. You would even pick at, right. So you know, could you even get a reliever that's halfway decent that isn't basically going to leave them with nothing? Um, I don't know, yeah. but you're going to throw I, in a I, Caleb Thiel bar, like, you know, how much does right. that really move the needle? Yeah. So, I mean, the main point is um, getting Sano though. Um, he does help in the short term, obviously at first base. And I, um, if yes, if you can get past the batting average and the strikeouts, um, this is a guy who, you know, if you go by OPS plus um, he's had, uh, an OPS plus over a hundred in every single season, except for one. So uh, of his seven season, he has been quote about quote unquote above average for six of them. Um, mm -hmm. So you'll definitely take that. You'll take um, that um, known power mm -hmm. at first base. He's already at uh, 161 home runs for his career, which I didn't realize he was already up to that. Um, yeah. And it, you know what, if he does end up working out and let's say the Brewers do want to entertain the thought of keeping him around, um, you've got Kane's contract kind of coming off the books next year um, anyway. And so, you know, maybe there are some things, you know, we know that um, there are other people who need to get paid. So it's not quite as easy as a one for one, um, but there may be ways to entertain keeping him around if he ends up having, you know, that good of a season in 2022. So um, I don't think he's necessarily guaranteed to be a one done in that scenario. Um, so yeah, it, it seems like a move that definitely um, works out. Uh, I, I wouldn't mind seeing it at all. I've always, I've always been a Sano fan. Um, and yeah, I mean, maybe not the best defensively, um, but he was even worse at third base and that's the whole yeah. reason they moved him off of third base. And we, really, we, if you we, get the DH, who cares? Like, like he doesn't have to exactly. Play. Yes. He's played about roughly 20% of his career games at designated hitter anyway. So, um, he is kind of a natural fit into that. If it does come to the national league, like basically everyone is expecting at this point. 
Yeah, and, and both Rowdy Telez and Kesson Hira are better defenders at first base. So, I mean, really, you could just stick Sano at, at DH um, and then just kind of mix and match however you need at first between Telez and Hira. And, you know, I know a lot of people probably don't want to hear this because they're all super down on Hira, but the Brewers are going to give Kesson Hira a chance. Mm-hmm. Like, just straight up, like, they are going to give Kesson Hira a real full opportunity this next year to prove that he can – be what they thought he was going to be, you know, that, that he can be the hitter that they drafted ninth overall can be the hitter. That was one of the top prospects in all the baseball can be the hitter that made uh, a fantastic debut in 2019. They're going to give him a chance to do that. A, a full legit chance this year. They got the new hitting coaches, Ozzy Timmons, Connor Dawson. They're going to work with them. They're going to try to get him back on track. Um, so he's going to get the chance this year. I don't see them. Uh, moving him or moving on from him or getting someone like Matt Olson right now and giving up on Hura just yet until they see him this year. They're going to give him that chance, whether people like it or not, because they've invested so much in this kid. They want to see that, that he can do it, that he can get back to uh, that level of success and just hit the way, the way he was supposed to. And he's going to get that chance whether the fans like it, he's going to have some leash. I'm not sure how long it's going to be. Um, I think if he struggles throughout all of this year, again, it's going to be time for a change of scenery, but they're going to at least give him some time here uh, to, to figure it out. Yeah. And we talked about that a little bit at the just very, very end of last week's episode about how um, it would absolutely wouldn't be surprising if, um, if for some reason first base isn't quite working out that the Brewers make an early season trade, um, mm-hmm. in 2022, much like they did with Arcia or, um, Willie Adamas trades. Um, but again, I, I mean, like you said, it, it's would be, not be smart to just give up on a guy of here's pedigree this immediately. I mean, we've seen mm-hmm. guys in the Brewers minor league system, um, like Trent Grisham, like Devin Williams, who didn't necessarily put it all together right away. And then, you know, a little bit differently. They didn't have quite the same scenario where, you know, they had a standout uh, season right away in the majors and then took the step back. But they took a while to blossom. They were highly regarded, just took a little bit to get there. Um, and now are both doing great. And so sometimes, you know, it is high as highly as you draft a guy, it still takes a little bit for them to, you know, find their legs. And with Hira, he had the added, uh, you know, strike against him that, you know, he had the situation that he was dealing with his family Mm -hmm. last year. And that obviously, you know, stalled his development a little bit. Um, But being a year past that, we all now hope that, um, you know, he's in a better place and um, uh, can kind of turn things around. But uh, he's young. We're, we're not giving up on Keston Hira. The Brewers definitely aren't giving up on Keston Hira. And like you said, he will get every opportunity to show that he's good to go um, and can contribute in 2022. Yeah. And they expect him to be, you know, a 300 hitter with 30 plus home runs. I mean, that, that's what they're expecting out of him. Um, and I think a lot of people on, uh, on Twitter and a, a lot of people listening would also say in terms of what stalled his development was the fact that Andy Haynes was his hitting coach. Um, Andy Haynes was handed the keys to a Ferrari 
uh, and all he had to do was not destroy it, and he ended up driving it straight into Lake Michigan. Uh, that's <laughs> that's pretty much what Andy Haynes seemed to do with Kesson here. I mean, his struggles, I, I think, is really what his struggles and Yelich's struggles is what cost Andy Haynes his job. I mean, straight up. If um, absolutely, like if any other dude, like you know, if Tyrone Taylor struggled uh, under Andy Haynes, if Manny Pena struggled under Andy Haynes, he wouldn't lose his job. But when Yelich and Hira struggle under Andy Haynes, you're, you're done. You're done. That's it. Um, so now with the new hitting coaches, um, I, I think they should be able to get him back on track. I hope they can be able to get him back on track because if they can't, I don't know who's going to be able to just straight yeah. up. I, I got no idea who can do it. Right. And you know, we, we talked about how, you know, this could be one of the beneficial things for the Brewers about having um, multiple hitting coaches, you know, two hitting coaches, co-hitting coaches and an assistant in that you've got um, guys with potentially different ways of connecting with the players. And you would think that one of those three can possibly just reach Hira and unleash what we all know is in there. Whereas if you've got just that one voice, um, if it's not working, if Andy Haynes is just not working for Hira, yeah, we had Jacob Cruz as well. Um, but if it wasn't working, that's it. I mean, it's up to Hira then yeah. himself to really turn things around. Whereas now um, you've got some guys with different approaches and maybe if, you know, if uh, Timmons isn't quite uh, getting through to Hira, uh, maybe Dawson does, or, um, or maybe they, you know, who knows? Maybe uh, Matt Erickson abilities are. I mean, Erickson exactly. managed him down in, uh, down in a ball down in Wisconsin. I mean, here, it wasn't there very long, uh, yeah, right. but, but he was successful. Um, yeah. so, but yeah, I mean, the Brewers believe in Hira. they're going to give him a chance. Um, and I don't think they're going to get anyone that would block him completely at first base and i know people might be complaining like oh why isn't rowdy telez playing as much at first base and you know telez as good as he is i mean he doesn't have anywhere near as high of a ceiling as a hitter as kesson Hira does the, the brewers haven't invested nearly as much in telez as they have in hira and because of that they're going to give hira every shot to win the everyday job i don't think they don't want hira in a platoon they may have to do it but they don't want to do it they want Hira to be the everyday guy. Uh, they want him in that lineup in, in the number four spot every single day. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so I can, I can already um, hear the complaining next year where Hira goes, you know, has a couple offers in a row and why are we not starting to look what he did last year. Yeah. Well, look what Vogelback Vogelback did in 2020 and then what he did in 2021. Like, one year of Telez doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be year. an all-star stud. A half year, exactly, yeah. uh, is going to be an all-star stud in 2022. So um, there's no guarantee that if Kira has a couple of rough days, that Telez is going to magically make things better. So give the kid a chance to show that he's turned things around because in the long term for the Brewers, that is uh, what could be most contingent on their success in future years is Keston Hira doing what Keston Hira can do. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of people being like, oh, they got to go buy a bat. You, you got to go get another bat. You got you to improve this offense. I'm like, this offense is going to have to improve from within. Mm -hmm. Like, you need Christian Yelich and Keston Hira to do what they were signed 
to do, what they were brought in to do. Yelich is here for the next seven, eight years. He's got a full no trade clause. He's signed to a $26 million a year contract. He's here. Like it or not, he's here. Um, for better or for worse. The, this marriage is happening. There is no divorce. So they need him to figure it out. And when he figures it out, they're going to be just fine. Because I feel like he can't be in, like, even at worst, he's going to be back to what he was in Miami, which is still hitting like 280, 290. Like he's not a 240 hitter. Like that's just mm-hmm. not who he is. He's not going to continue to do that. Um, so as long as he can get back on track and, you know, then they'll be fine. And, and Hira, they're expecting him to do plenty. Um, if he can get, if he can get back on track, they're fine. Cause then you have those two in the middle of the order. You got Hunter Renfro who can bring 30 homers a season. Uh, you got Colton Wong, who's a great table setter. You got Willie Adamas, uh, who's been phenomenal. You got Luis Arias, uh, who would probably be your six or seven hitter. And he could supply 20, home, 20 home runs and, and hit really well. Uh, you got Omar Narvaez down there. You got, you got potentially a designated hitter, uh, which could be either Hira or Telez, or it could be Miguel Sano, or it could be Nelson Cruz if they sign him. You know, it could be a number of options. That could be a 30 home run hitter. Um, so you, ha- you have the guys, if Yelich and Hira bounce back, like you have them already on the roster. You don't need to buy someone new necessarily you just need those guys to be what they're supposed to be. The offense sucked last year because those guys weren't anywhere near what they needed to be. And you were dependent on Avi Garcia, uh, who was supposed to be a role player, or, or maybe not a role player, but like he was supposed to be a supplemental piece to the core of that offense. He wasn't supposed to be the, your cleanup hitter. He wasn't supposed to be your, your lead home run guy. Um, so as long as they can get those two back on track, this offense doesn't necessarily need uh, to buy more offense. Yeah. First off, I get all kinds of warm and fuzzies when I think of what the final line for Willie Adamas is going to be in 2022 with an uh, entire season for the Brewers. Like it, oof, ooh, get excited, everyone. Tinglies. Ooh. But uh, <laughs> like kind of just to, to speak to your point, like, no, uh, one player is not going to just magically turn the Brewers offense into a top 10 um, offense, especially if like, we don't know, like, is Luis Urias going to see any regression possibly from last year? Is Like, is he going to hit another, you know, 25 or whatever home runs? Um, is Narvaez going to take a, a little bit of a step back? Is, um, you know, is Wong still going to be uh, injured here and there? Like, it, even if uh, Yelich and Huras step up, um, there are potentially a player or two here who may not have the season that they had in 2021. Um, so that makes it even more important that the, uh, some of the Brewers internal guys, um, just find a way to, um, kind of do the things that we know they can do that we've seen them do in previous seasons. Um, and that just adding one player to the mix, um, isn't going to just balance all of that out. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot for, for the Brewers to, to deal with this season and a lot to see happen and, um, you know, David Stearns has found a way to make it work before. And, you know, he was able to, to build a pretty strong team last year, despite the offense being so bad. Um, so we'll see how it goes and season's hopefully going to be starting in about two weeks or so with the uh, pitchers and catchers reporting, you know, Will Salmon joined us earlier here on the podcast and, you know, kind of given that, that timeline and yeah, pitchers and catchers are about two weeks away from reporting. 
We'll see if they're able to. We'll see if the lockout ends in time. Uh, no promises on that, but you never know. You never know. So we're approaching the end of the, of the non-baseball season. You know, at the very least, we're going to have minor leaguers at spring training. Uh, so we'll have something to talk about. We've got, you know, more news that's going to be coming out over the next few weeks. So be sure to keep it here on the Cold Brew Podcast. Be sure to keep checking, reviewing thebrew.com every single day. New stuff coming out all the time. Um, so it's it's a really great, enjoyable content. So we'll keep you informed and uh, entertained and uh, looking at uh, plenty of stuff regarding our favorite team, the Milwaukee Brewers. That'll do it for us this week on the podcast. Uh, thank you to Will Salmon again for joining us earlier on the pod. Uh, for Matt Carroll, for Will Salmon, I'm Dave Gasper. We'll see you again next week for another episode of the Cold Brew Podcast. Yeah.